1: Or even if they don't, today is July the 1st, 2016, and this is episode 1819 of the Survival Podcast. Um, I have an interesting one for you today because it's all about you. This is a show where you guys call in and ask me questions. Normally for Friday, 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 we do expert counsel Q&A, but I had to make some changes this week. As many of you know by looking at the site and the blog, I am a grandfather Again, times two. Uh, my son and daughter-in-law had a little baby named Tegan yesterday. I went down there to have to be there when she was born. They were going to induce labor. It would be really, you know, a lot more predictable. And, you, yeah, kids don't always do what you expect even when you think you know. So I got pretty late yesterday. I wasn't actually at the hospital when Tegan was born. I had to come home because I had to take care of the animals. Um, so you could go see her this afternoon. So that's going to be great. I've only seen pictures myself so far. I was able to go see, uh, Tiffany and Matthew and be there with them for a while though, while they were waiting, I told her, hurry up and make with the baby. It gave her a laugh. And I think that's one of the best things you can do for people in an uncomfortable situation is make them laugh. I, I wish I could tell you everything we were going to talk about today was going to make you laugh, but that that would be untrue. But I'll, I'll do what I can to put some humor in today, as well as a lot of education and entertainment. Uh, today, what are we going to talk about? Here's what I have calls on. I have a call about using comfrey after a surgery, and I'm going to say probably not, at least probably not very soon after a surgery. I'll talk about that in a bit. also have things gotten bad enough for emergency room nurses to need body armor, like on the job. Maybe we'll talk about that today. What about prepping for flooding? Well, it's a little out of my wheelhouse, but I'll do my best. And another way of looking at free money from the government. I guess it's hard for me to name this particular segment. When you hear the caller explain the situation, you'll, you'll understand why. But uh, we had a question last week about uh, a person being offered uh, a tax incentive basically as a rebate. Uh, For kids in Canada, but they do it like a check in the mail to you instead of really on your tax form. But it's really a tax break, is what it comes down to. It's uh, what we call earned income credit here in the United States. And this is another angle at that where someone says, Well, what do I do? Uh, A complicated one, indeed. Uh, Thoughts on banking in gold or full reserve banking? I have a new service to tell you about. I don't know how new it is. It's new to me, I didn't know it existed. Uh, where you can bank in gold, and it's something where you can bank in gold as an American. Uh, I'll tell you why I'm not exactly jumping all over it, though, but at least it's there and available. And we'll talk a little bit about what full reserve banking is or would mean. Um, I have a question from a young man getting ready to go off to college, most likely, to pursue an engineering degree. At least it's a real degree. Um, and is trying to choose between majors or wondering, should he even do this at all? I also have uh, a qu- person saying, what do we do when... Uh, When I go, hi, this is Jack Spierko, and it's episode uh, 2017, and we're going to do the year 2017 for the history segment, which the year is not even done yet, and then there's no more history segments, because he doesn't want the history segments to go away, and I'll tell you uh, how that can can work out, what what that's going to be all about uh, when we get there. And I have a great question. I almost never actually set the order of these shows. I believe in synchronicity, so... I usually just, you know, scan the calls in order. Sometimes I do it from the back to front, front to back, whatever. But I usually, whatever order, I go, ah, it's a good call. I just throw it in there and number it, right? Actually, this one came out to be the first question. And going into the 4th of July weekend, I think it might be really good as the last question. Callers asking, what does it say that most elections are so close? You know, elections anymore, you see most things, unless it's like a congressional district or something, You see it come down to 1% to 2%. What does that really say? And the caller has some ideas, but I'll tell you it's far worse than the caller thinks. And it tells us something very, very important to consider as we get ready to celebrate our nation's independence. And I also have a great song to close today's show with for you that I co-wrote. It is by Greg Yost, but it is not The Revolution Is You. No, my friends, I have a different closing song for you today. We'll get to all that and more in just a bit. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know that what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. Hey guys, if you're like me, you're always concerned about the reckless economic policies of our nation. One way to ensure your wealth is to keep about 5 to 10% of it in precious metals like silver and gold. And my first choice when I'm buying either is JM Bullion because I get personalized service, free shipping, and better pricing than the big silver houses all in one place. Check out JMBullion.com to learn more. And with that knocked out, I have uh, the history segment for you. The year is 1819 because the episode is 1819. I have Dartmouth College and the Divine Right of Democracies. And I have the Panic of 1819. And in other news, a child's workday is reduced to 12 hours this year. No night work and no child under nine may be hired. Enforcement remains a problem. The SS Savannah is the first steamship to cross the Atlantic. It uses steam for a short while. Most of the trip uses wind power. Yeah, it would be important anyway because you learn how to make, you figure out what doesn't work. What do we need to do to make this work? And uh, they do in time. And then Singapore becomes a British colony in the year 1819. They're challenging the Dutch commercial presence in the same reason. Good old-fashioned imperialism. Anyway, uh, let's read the Panic of 1819 because it kind of fits in with a lot of things going on and a question today as well. The world economy is still in chaos after the end of the Napoleonic Wars. After all, if governments are no longer spending millions on gunpowder, muskets, and ships... Those industries must cut back while they find new markets to exploit. Workers must find other things to do, and it takes considerable time to adjust. The American economy has been going down the crapper even faster due to the dubious help of government policy. Excessive land speculation fueled by the easy money policies of the Second Bank of the United States have set up the United States for a fall. When the Bank of the U.S. pulls back and shrinks the money supply and thus returns to more conservative lending practices, the state banks panic and call in their loans. Well, the investments those loans represent have not ripened yet, if they ever will. The loans fail, the banks fall down, and it all comes. Americans look around and ask themselves, what the heck the government has been up to lately? Apparently, nothing good. Trust in government has gone bye-bye. Okay, and remember, these people probably had less trust to begin with than most of us do today. When I say most of us, I don't mean you, dear listener. I mean most of us is not the majority of... The sheeple. Anyway, my take by Alex Shrug, who puts these together for us at TSB Wiki. People trust the government quite a bit, but that all ended with the panic of 1819. I remember when the reputation of President George H.W. Bush took a hit during the savings and loan crisis. In those days, savings and loans, or thrifts, were limited in kind of investments they could make. But with the economy on the upswing and a bright future ahead, the thrifts were losing depositors to more risky investments. The money market funds... Uh, many of the thrifts became technically insolvent, which means they should have notified regulators and transferred the remaining deposits into a solvent bank. But with the changes in banking laws and lax monitoring by regulators, some thrifts took a chance on riskier investments with a big paycheck in hope of turning their situation around. And when the Federal Reserve began charging higher interest rates for the money, the thrifts were caught in a death spiral. The risky investments could not make up for the high cost of living, a higher cost of money and the technical insolvency. Over $200 billion was lost. What about depositor insurance? The insurance company was insolvent too. I blame Congress for easing up on bank regulations without considering the consequences, adjusting for them in the law. Most people blame President Bush the Elder since he was in the hot seat at the time. I blame government. I blame government regulating the financial industries at all for all of these things. Period. Why? Because it creates the illusion of security where security does not exist. That's what I think. And I'll save most of that for later in the show when we talk about a question that kind of really parallels this really well. But let me tell you something about the savings and loan uh, crisis. You know who the primary people that got hurt were? Older people on fixed incomes. Because they, they looked at it and said, oh, this is like a bank account. This is like a bank account It pays more interest. So the illusion that their money would be safe, because it was like a bank account, not understanding the underlying insurance, and pop goes the bubble, and all the money is gone. By the way, the government did not bail them out. They didn't put enough people in prison over it either, but we'll save that for later, as I said. But the illusion of security creates a willingness to risk At much higher levels than one would risk at if they actually understood them keep that in mind as we go through today's show and with that let's go ahead and take your first call of the day and it is definitely an interesting one
2: hey jack i've got a question on using comfrey and as a salve Uh, my wife is getting ready to have a fairly major surgery on her leg they're going to basically open up her leg from about mid-thigh down to about mid-calf, just above the ankle. And my question is, she's up for, for using the salve we made. I think Nick Ferguson published an article on a salve he uses. And we made that with the comfrey and plantain and calendula and, and chamomile. And I was curious on when she should start using that with a, with having that surgery. Or even if, if she should use it on the, the surgery or the, the wound on there. You know, I figured she could be in the hospital for three days, so we figured that she wouldn't use it then, but didn't know if, in your opinion, we ought to use it when we get home or should wait a little bit and let the, the wound do the initial, initial closing or what. So just kind of wanted to get your opinion on it if, if we can. Have a wonderful day, man.
1: I'm going to tell you, I almost didn't, Take this one because the, the the concept of what do you recommend that I do with a wound on my wife's leg from her almost her ankle up to past her knee uh, after surgery that's given in a medical facility is hell no I'm not going to make any recommendation because you're you're asking me to practice medicine and I can always kind of soften that well with, with saying well here's what I would do uh, instead of saying this is what you should do and that's a that's a fine line but it's a pretty it's a pretty specific line. In this case, though, I'm going to say, I don't know exactly what I would do and when I would do it. And I'm going to explain why from a pr- perspective of, of pro-modern medicine. Because I believe modern medicine does a lot of bad things to us, mostly with drugs, not, not so much with, with surgical procedure. I think most surgical procedure, if warranted, is, is a miracle of modern science and what they're able to do. Um, so that said, what is the biggest concern with using Comfrey on a wound if that wound is open in any way, shape, or form, or if it's deep, which is an incision to do the surgery, which I'm guessing is a vein removal? Like I can't think of why else you would make a decision. I'm not even sure. I, I don't really know what they're doing there, but whatever it is, you know, uh, I wish you the best going through it. Doesn't sound fun, Um but you're talking about being in a medical facility. You're talking about a a precision incision you're talking about it being closed up very well by a surgeon who is good at what he does and in most instances that 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 should heal very very well and i'm sure they're going to monitor it to make sure there is no infection and if there were they'd have to actually open it and allow that to debrief so The big concern with comfrey is that it will heal the wound too fast and in doing so could actually trap infection on the inside of a wound. So when we're, when we're taking care of ourselves due to some sort of laceration or abrasion, if it's deep, that's why we don't use comfrey because we don't want to seal in an infection. So the odds of that happening here are probably quite low and probably mitigated by the fact they're either going to stitch or staple it, and I would imagine that they'll staple this. They may do an internal stitch, and in an it's a dissolving stitch, and in an internal staple. I mean, I don't really know. I'm not a doctor. Um, it's conceivable that at some point it might make sense that, let's say, after you've got a clean bill of health and the, the sutures, staples, what have you, have been removed, that comfrey may aid in the regeneration of the skin and reduce the scarring. But I don't think it's necessary to help heal the incision. I think your doctors will probably do a very good job with that. But this is one of those things I don't know. I don't know. I use comfrey on scrapes and cuts and things like that that are minor, but I want them to heal quickly. Especially when there are things like, you know, when you get those little cuts like, where your finger bends or something, and they're, they're a lot more painful than they would be if they were somewhere else. That's what it's great for. It's great for insect bites. It's, it's, it's great for sprains and strains. That, that's what I use it for. The, the, I've never even considered using it on a long incision like that, and I would think that the biggest concern that you would have would be mitigation of scarring. And I would actually suggest maybe you do some research on that, because I'm not sure comfrey would be the best thing for that. And there may be some other things that that have... No inherent risk that can aid you with the the reduction of scarring, but there are times. No matter how much I seem like I am anti, you know, modern medicine, that modern medicine is the answer. And I think with something like this, at least to the point of, okay, you can, we can take this stuff out that's holding your leg together, and it's it's going to hold itself together. Modern medicine is the place to be for something like that. If it wasn't, you would be having the surgery. So. Uh, in this case, I actually say trust your doctor. Well, let's take another one.
3: Hi, Jack. This is Donnie from West Virginia. My question is, what is your opinion on ER nurses wearing body armor? Background. I'm an ER nurse in South Dallas with terrible security. Did you get answer this on the show? I appreciate it. Thank you.
1: I mean, that's one of those things, I guess in the end, that's a decision you're going to have to make for yourself. I mean, you, I think you'd be looking at like a level two uh, concealable body armor there, um, which should probably be uh, sufficient for, you know, what could happen, someone getting in there most likely armed. Uh, rather you know, Unless you're talking about like a mass shooting or something, you're, you're, you're talking about most likely somebody concealing a handgun. Uh, and you know being off the streets, you're probably looking at forty or nine millimeter, and those you know both are preventable with level two uh soft body armor, so it would do the job it would probably make you less physically comfortable at work. It would probably be uh, I've been to uh, uh hospitals in in South Dallas uh and you know they're not the most air conditioned places in the world, so it probably make you hotter during our summers. And I guess you gotta decide for yourself whether you personally feel like this would be, uh, worth the lack of comfort, uh, and expense in order to feel more secure. Because, I mean, you're right. The security at a lot of these hospitals is pretty lapsed. Um, I mean, I'm just thinking of when I had my wreck that the guy that hit me seemed like he, wasn't exactly the most law-abiding person on planet Earth. And the the girl with him looked like some dope head he picked up. And uh, they didn't want to be there when the cops got there because it turned out he had no insurance, of course. So they, they hauled ass into the ambulance to go get, quote-unquote, checked out. And I didn't notice, you know, paramedics or anybody really patting them down to make sure they weren't armed or anything. Just where do you hurt? Oh, it's just my chest. It aches a little bit. So if they were severely injured, obviously, if they had any kind of thing on it, they'd probably find it just from, just from doing triage. But because it was more of a, you know, are you all right type of thing? We're just going to go get checked out, get x-ray, whatever. Those people could have been armed and walked and been in there and, and then freaked out. You know, if it turned out that instead of just not having insurance, he had a bunch of dope in his car, and uh, he thought the cops were on him, who knows? I mean, that's just one example. I'll tell you another story I know I wasn't at, but I know for a fact occurred. Um There was a guy that was shot in the calf. Ironically enough, this man worked for me. He was a very large man, and uh he had been hit by a ricochet, and it, he got it through and through in his calf, and... Uh, He, uh, you know, went to the hospital to get it checked out. And while he's there, apparently the guy that took a shot at him, again, I didn't hire these people. This is back in my cabling days, right? So don't take anything off this guy work for me. But the guy that shot at him got roughed up somehow in the same altercation that resulted in the shot being taken. And he ends up at the same ER as the guy that got shot in the leg. Now, the guy that got shot in the leg, it was a through and through. He was basically wanting to make sure he didn't get gangrene and die, is what he was worried about. So he just kind of went himself to the hospital. While he's there, he sees this other guy, pulls out a knife, and stabs him. I mean, I bet you there's ER personnel that could tell you all kinds of stories like that happening. If, if you want to see some of this stuff, you know, With a little theatrics around it, there's a show uh, my wife and I watch, and I'm pretty sure it's called Untold Stories of the ER. It's on discovery or science or something like that. And Some of the stuff's just funny, and some of it's flat-out crazy. I mean, What you have to think about is people going to an emergency room are going there because they were injured. Now, many of them were injured in accidents and things like that, but many of them were injured because they break the, the rule that Frank Sharp Jr. gives us to not end up dead. Don't go to stupid places and do stupid things with stupid people. And there's a lot of people coming to the ER because they break that rule, all three of them, doing stupid things in stupid places with stupid people like drugs, and where drugs are, there's guns. You know, We talked about prohibition with, with, with drugs, and that's, that's the number one reason for, drug, for gun violence in America is the prohibition around drugs that creates a black market and illegal industry. And so, there, people are dealing with this type of thing, and then people just freaking out. And you know, it's definitely possible for people to be in there with a gun. Um, I might, if I had your job, do it myself. I don't know that I would. I think it would depend on where I worked, how I felt, what I saw going on around me. But it would be cheap insurance if anything ever happened. But the other thing I wanted to cover with this, because I really can't tell you what to do. That's that's my opinion. I might do it if I were you. I certainly wouldn't look down on you for it. One thing people need to understand about body armor, what it will do and what it won't do for you. Um, the vest comes right up to the, the top of the chest. does a real good job of protecting the vitals from the front and the back. Unless you specifically have side panels, which most people don't wear, um, it, you're still very vulnerable uh, the way you're thinnest, right, across that way, underneath the arm and stuff like that. Uh, it does absolutely nothing to protect the extremities below the waist, etc. Um And one of the most vulnerable spots on the human body, and a place that's probably a better shot to take, in a lot of times than trying to hit just center mass, is actually right where the the the, the neck meets the body, right at the top of the sternum. There, uh, if you hit somebody there, you're going to anchor them, and that's a very bad place to be hit. And most vests, that you know, they come just under that area, so the head, the neck, the throat, and that area there are fully exposed. So body armor doesn't make you superhuman or guarantee you that you won't die. What it does is a good job of is protecting the, 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 the vitals that are in the chest uh, and t- protecting the gut areas, which is not as likely to result in immediate death or rapid bleed out unless you get a shot to the liver in certain points, um, but is a very, very critically bad wound. One thing you don't want is a bullet going through. We don't want a bullet going through anywhere. You don't want a bullet taken off the tip of your pinky, even though you'll be just fine, right? You just don't want that. But what you really, really don't want is one going through the intestines and and taking a lot of that stuff that's supposed to stay in the intestines out of it. The infection is extreme. So body armor's good at all of those things. Just understand, it's not a guarantee. It's simply a, a multiplier, right? It gives you a, a greater chance of survival. And frankly, I hate to say this, but, you know, as laps as, as security is in uh, emergency rooms, you got a couple security guys, maybe one or two armed people there. Um, it would be a hell of a place for the next mass shooting to happen. Because what do they tell you? You can't have a gun. You If you are a licensed concealed carry person and you work at a hospital, you have to leave your gun in your truck or your car. And so it's a soft target in many ways because the thing about them, and this is what people don't understand, armed security sucks. When you're dealing with terrorists that know they're going to die anyway. Because I'm a terrorist and I know I'm going to die anyway, and I have a gun, and I go into a facility, what am I going to do when there's an armed guard here and an armed guard there? Bang, bang. You're the first two I take out. The, the best security in these situations against these types of people are plainclothes armed citizens or armed security, either one. But So you don't know who's armed. Because the fundamental reality all of us who are armed have to realize is my gun's only valuable if I'm not the person they take the first shot at from behind. Because I could be somewhere, and if there's a, a mass shooting, and if I'm there, I might be able to change the equation if I'm armed. But if I'm you know, watching a, a movie or a play or a symphony or a baseball game or walking to, you know, with my kid talking to him about what kind of shoes he wants or something... And a guy that comes in the door to do the shooting, the first shot he takes is me. I'm out of the equation. Well, that would be a good reason not to have a giant light bulb over my head saying I'm the guy with the gun. And that's the problem in these situations. Is even when they do have armed security, you know who's armed. So I, I might do it if I were you. I know it's a long answer, and I went into a lot of other things, but it's a, you know, my, my concern is look, we're getting to a point where nurses need body armor. Think about that. Well, let's take another one.
3: Hi, Jack. This is Donnie from West Virginia. My question is, what are some good ways to prep for flooding? Uh, Background. um, I have a lot of family in West Virginia that are dealing with the current flooding that is going on. Um, Just wondering if you could maybe touch on that on one of your shows. Uh, Appreciate the work you do. Thanks.
1: Okay, so on, on flood prep... Uh, on some levels this is really out of my wheelhouse i've always considered this when i've bought property and it's always mitigated my concerns and what i mean by that is last year for example we had flooding all around us we had 27 days of rain in may i had turtles in my yard but my house did not flood my garage didn't even flood um my yard flooded but that was about it and that was 27 out of 31 days rain i mean really like that say and it wasn't sprinkles i mean some of those days had three to four inches a piece we got uh four inches one time in about two and a half hours so you know my place in arkansas was on the top of a mountain people say, what about floods and i'd say well if the flood comes here i'm looking for an old dude with a beard and Bunch of animals getting on a boat and I'm getting on it too. I mean, that's how unlikely it was. So, I've always, same place with our thing with our plant house in Pennsylvania. We we're at 900 feet elevation and it was 450 feet down in the valley. If the flood came there, I mean, I'm looking for the ark again. So, I mean, that's one of the first things you can do is to try to choose a housing site or choose your housing in a place that's at mitigated less no risk from flooding or only at risk from biblical-type floods, which kind of West Virginia just got. But if you're in one of those places, even if it affects you, it affects you a hell of a lot less than the people down in the valley. So seeking the higher ground, seeking less likely places for flooding is kind of my first thing. My next thing I would say is take a look at what people do that live on the coast where flooding happens every time there's a storm. What do they do? They build their houses on sticks. Now, I'm not saying to build your house on sticks, but the point is they put everything that's really valuable up higher. So, I mean, one of the things you can do that would be beneficial if you're going to be in a flooding zone is to have, you know, look for two story houses. And that way, at least if they're, and that doesn't mean you have to keep all your stuff on the second floor, but if you're in a, generally flooding is not something that happens like this. Gee, everything is super. Oh, there's a flood. Right? There's usually some foreknowledge. Right? There's some, unless you, like, a dam blows above you or something. You know that. The, so that lets you decide, okay, it's time to, like, it looks bad. Let's start moving stuff up. Another thing you can do if you have the, the, the geography to work with is a lot of times you could design earthworks around a, a, a facility to to move water around and away from you. The sad part is you'd probably be making it worse for somebody else somewhere, but in the end, you got to figure out what to do. I've seen a lot of things, and I've seen these—they have these new things that are basically like a floatable, inflate—I'm sorry, floatable, inflatable like levee that they just put around a house or a, a barn or whatever, and blow it up, and it just kind of lets water go around and not up to, um, you know, the old sandbags and stuff like that. But to me, I think the first thing is you have to stay weather aware. You have to know that the problem is, is coming, it's severe, and it includes you. Um, number two, you move your stuff to higher ground. Number three, have your evacuation plan. I mean, I think that's the most important thing is have your evacuation plan because flooding could be a minor inconvenience or it can be life-threatening. depends on the degree. It can also isolate you and cut you off where maybe you're not in that bad of shape, but you can't get anywhere because everything around you, you're flooded out. It can make a huge mess of things. I think that having a plan for how to clean up, if you're a farmer, I mean, I know Kevin and Charlie up at Eliza Springs Farm, they're cleaning up mess yet because they're part of this giant mess. Um, it, it's one of those things that, that, that does just happen. But it usually, like I said, it usually happens with foreknowledge. It's not ah, everything's right. Oh, there's a flood. It's just not that way. So, I mean, those are the things to think about and, and to be willing to make the call. That okay, this looks bad. Let's get out of here and have a place to go. Because what happens if you don't make that call is inevitably you get to a point where if it gets bad enough, where you should have, you no longer can, because your evacuation routes are cut off, and then you have to deal with the situation. And and the problem is that always you know, it's not always just as simple as get high, you know, get up onto the second floor or whatever here's another thing that happened during the you know the, the monsoons last year, uh, this period of May that I'm talking about where we got so much rain. Not too far south of us, an entire house was moved off its foundation by floodwaters and, and, and literally ended up in a river and washed down a river. And I think there was a, a family that was staying there on vacation or something, and it was like a father, two kids, and a mother. And I might not have this p- completely right, but I think what ended up happening was they were all asleep when it happened. They totally didn't expect it. They weren't weather aware. They weren't paying attention. Um, and, uh, I think three of the four died. And I think it was the father that survived. And I could, can only imagine, you know, the survivor's guilt. To, to, it, it would, you almost would feel like it'd be better if I would have died with everybody else. Um, and they looked for the rest of the family for days, and I think they finally did recover them. Maybe they didn't even recover them all, but eventually ruled it as all, they all died. So, this is something that can kill you. People worry about tornadoes, folks. Flooding kills more people than tornadoes. By a long shot. Every year. So, it, it, again, it's, it's having the plan to evacuate when necessary, mitigate the damage, get valuables as high up as possible, and have respect for uh, one of, one of nature's greatest forces, moving water. Uh, it's, it's amazing what moving water can do in, an amount that you don't think is that significant. Um, moving where it's not normally supposed to is, uh, it, it can be quite impressive and quite terrifying. Uh, hope that helps. Let's take another one.
4: Hey, Jack. Hey, the, the, the caller, uh, I know it's Tuesday, but I was listening to Monday's show. The caller that asked about, should it take the government money? Um, that really kind of like struck a note with me, and I just wanted to kind of put a scenario out there and see what you thought about it. Uh, we're fostering a child that we're probably going to adopt. The state and the uh, social workers and stuff, they're really pushing me very hard to take the subsidies that are available. How that plays into it. Uh, when my son was born two years ago, uh, we had plenty of financial resources. I stayed at home for the first six months to be dad. And uh, and uh I think that you know, that was an important thing to do. With this one, we don't necessarily have as many financial resources. Yeah, I heard you tell the guy, don't look at that money as income invested. Do something with it. I'm kind of torn between um, staying full-time employed or cutting back and spending more time as dad. Just wanted
1: to hear your thoughts on it thanks okay well here here's the issue um I want you to understand when the last person so anybody that didn't hear the the last call was a gentleman in Canada uh they get like i don't know it's something like almost thirty thousand dollars a year or something like that for their four kids. And as the kids kid eighteen, they stop getting it. And the one's seventeen, so immediately they're gonna stop getting it. And my advice was don't don't see that money as income, uh, because eventually your kids will be gone and then the money will too. And to do something with it, put it away. And but what I meant was the surplus. There is an expense to raising a child. So my advice to that person was not just pretend that money doesn't exist at all and squirrel it away in a hole. Um and it was also about the ethics of do I take the money. And in that instance there, I said, yeah, you take the money because this is a, a national program that essentially is a tax rebate. And even though they send you a check, not taking it isn't going to change anything. And it would be the same as having a deduction that you could plug into your tax form and not taking it because you don't want to take free money until until – until I get $1 more than they take away from me, as I said last time, it is not, it is not me stealing property. It is me recovering my stolen property. Um, I have no moral qualms getting every penny I can out of the government until I come par with what they've taken from me, including my time to make it as little as possible. So if I had to profit a little bit to get my time back, I, that's fine too. They took my property against my will to do shit with it I don't want done. Okay, So the moral quandary is not there, uh, not for me anyway, because again, you took my property. In this case, you've got a situation where there's money available because you're doing a wonderful thing, adopting a child who otherwise would not have a family. And when you say, well, I would take the money and stay home and be dad, um, I think that that's a noble idea, and I can't tell you what to do with your life. I'm not Yoda. Sometimes I think people think I am, but I'm not. And Yoda'd make you figure it out for yourself anyway. Um, but here's how I'd, I'd kind of point you in the right direction around the decision. And that is, if what you mean is I want to stay, like, if you're adopting an, a baby and your, and your wife has to work because she just makes more money and it just makes more financial sense. You want somebody to be there instead of putting them in like daycare or something like that. And will you mean to stay home for the next two, three, four years until this child is school aged? Uh, I don't know if you're gonna homeschool or whatever, maybe. But if you mean raise a child from you know two, one, however old this kid is, five, I don't know, to to, to eighteen, and stay home that entire time using this money to pay household expenses, the problem you end up with is being unemployed for. A decade and a half or two and then saying you know let's say you're 30 and now you're 50 and you ain't held a job in the last 20 years or only part-time jobs and now you need an income as you're heading into retirement age and that money's gone and see that's that's a problem so i think that you you have to think about providing for yourself not just for your family because eventually you if you do your job right and if you are dad the way dads are supposed to be dads Little boys and little girls grow up and become young men and women, and they leave. And that's what they're, that's what you're supposed to do. If you're not working yourself out of a job a little bit more every day, you're doing it wrong. So you have to figure out how this works with your child, your life situation, and whatever. But my caution would be not to see this as a job because it won't count as a job on a resume and if we look ahead that far, it may be a really tough market for someone that's been in it for the last 15 years, uh, and it may be completely unattainable for someone that hasn't. That said, there are other things you can do to earn income, starting a business, working part-time, et cetera, cons- you know, doing, setting up some kind of contract work that you can do from home. I don't know what you do professionally. These are all things you have to work out. But again, I think it's important to understand your situation is totally different basically you're being offered uh, some level of, of uh, monetary contingency as uh, what it sounds like actually is a foster parent like it's like usually when you adopt you don't you don't get that not that I'm aware of you know people spend a lot of money to adopt but if there's like some transitional period and you're offered that that monetary support during that transitional period, you know, I don't know what kind of program you. You definitely take the money, but you have to think about what you're going to do when the money's gone, how long the money's going to last, what the pathway looks like to that, and how you're going to support your family that you're voluntarily expanding, and God bless you for it. But you're voluntarily expanding. You're now taking someone and saying I will be responsible for you. So you have to think about how you're fiscally going to support yourself and that person when that money's gone or when it's no longer enough to do the job. Let's take another one.
3: Hey, Jack. uh, Dennis here from Jersey City moving out to PA. Thanks a lot for the information about the shipping containers. A question uh, for you is, what's your view on full reserve banking and companies like BitColt? Is that a better way to bank rather than the credit union or banking system? Uh, Any advice would help? Thanks a lot. Take care.
1: Okay, so big gold is a new thing to me. I didn't know that existed. Um, it seems like a clone in a gray area of what Perth Mint in Australia has been done doing forever. Uh, the Perth Mint has a bank account in a true bank, actual bank, where you can put your money in, and then it's backed by the gold in the Perth Mint of Australia, and then you get a little – you know, debit card basically, and you can deposit money and spend money, and as soon as you deposit it, it's all converted to gold, and when you spend it, it's converted from gold to dollars or euros or yen or whatever, and you spend it. And the problem's always been that, well, you want an account here, that's fine, put some money in, and you go to set an account up, you can do it online or on the phone, and then you go, well, what citizen are you, uh, what what nation are you a citizen of? You say, the United States, and they go, wah, wah, and you can't do it, because it is almost impossible for Americans to open foreign bank accounts, and most banks have gotten so sick and tired of the regulations around working with American citizens, they just don't do it anymore this is my first red flag so what bit gold seems to do is you buy you make your deposits in in bitcoin i guess that's why they call it BitGold. gold i can't really find another side it. i could set up an account i didn't want to so i didn't but in the end once you put your money in there whether it goes in as dollars or bitcoin or canadian dollars or again as a canadian company you, you you're buying one gram cubes or 10 gram cubes of gold is what you're buying, and it's supposed to be instantly audible, uh, so you can audit it yourself to see if they actually have the gold there because the computer says so. I I don't know. But it's not a bank account. Now, it works with banks. In fact, it's integrated with seven big U.S. banks like Chase to enable the, the rapid automated currency transfers Uh, or basically gold settlement is what you call this. So we're settling our debt in gold, but you're getting dollars, but it was backed with gold. So this is a lot of moving parts because you're asking me about totally different things. You're asking me about that versus full reserve banking, okay? And and that's not full reserve banking. That's that's a, a commodity exchange scheme, and scheme's not necessarily a bad word, that integrates to allow rapid settlement using the the commodity. And it's not a bank, and it's in this really gray area. It looks like it's publicly traded on a Canadian stock exchange, by the way, um, from what I could see, anyway. So it's got a big target on it, but I would have said the same thing about PayPal when it was first founded. Will it it escape the regulators? It's able to do what it's doing because it's essentially not regulated. The problem is all the people in the regulated world don't like the people in a non-regulated world. Remember during the, the history segment I said I think the problem is that governments involve themselves in financial institutions in the first place and create an illusion of security that's not really there? Well, they also create a lot of manipulation capability and they're owned by the very institutions that they're regulating. So those institutions don't like people like this, but yet the banks are working with this company, otherwise they wouldn't have integration with Chase, for instance. So I'm not really sure here what to tell you about that. Now, full reserve banking, you don't really have anything that's truly full reserve banking today. It doesn't exist. Um, The concept is that if I'm a banker, I'm the Bank of Jack, and you put $10,000 in my bank today, I have to keep that $10,000 in my bank. So where do I get money to lend money? Where do I get money to lend money? Because that's what banks do. Banks aren't there because, you know, like a library, just to hold on to shit, and you can come use it when you want it and put it back. Right? Banks are there to make money. So how would a bank make money in a full reserve banking system? Well, they would charge fees. The fees would generate a rate of surplus of deposits because they would charge you just to keep your money in the bank. They would charge you... To to for every check you wrote, they would charge you for everything. That's how they would work. And then that would build up a certain chunk of, depo- of money that's no longer depositors' money. It's the bank's money. And then as the bank built that up as a reserve beyond the full reserve, they could lend out the surplus at interest. This would drive interest rates up. Full reserve banking is a a nice idea out of the Austrian School of Economics, but it doesn't work in the modern economy at all. Um, I don't like fractional reserve the way that it's practiced today, Um, but there has to be some sort of ability in our modern economy for a bank to lend out the money you deposit. It's just... How much of that is really the question? So full reserve isn't an option right now. It's not that it could never work, but it's not an option. But it leads us to how we think about this whole thing. Why do you put money in a bank? Why do you put money in a bank? You might think that it's like one or two answers. It's actually quite a few answers, but they all lead you to decide how much money should go in a bank, period. One reason we put money in a bank is for, dun-dun-dun, security, Right If the bank gets robbed, it's not my money that got robbed. it's the bank's money that got robbed. If one bank gets robbed of you know ten thousand dollars or something like that, it doesn't affect depositors. even fractional reserve full reserve wouldn't matter it, the, the bank can cover the loss in the end, your money is secured either in a physical vault or in an electronic vault so security is one convenience. I don't have to travel with my money. I can travel with some sort of means of accessing my money, whether it's script or credit or a debit card or whatever. So ease of making pay or I can write a check, right? Check is script. That's what it is. Monetary script. So convenience, my ability to pay the grocer, the electric company, whatever, that's a reason I would I would put money in a bank. So Money that is going to be spent on a reoccurring basis creates a convenience. Another reason I put money in a bank to earn interest to make money. That reason doesn't really exist today with what banks are paying in interest. It's, it's not worth them having your money. You might as well put your money in a box under your mattress. You lose the security and the convenience. But as far as you're not making any money with you know your savings and checking accounts today of any real amount. So, when I look at things like banking and gold, what I'm doing is I'm creating a volatility in my own reserve. What I mean by that is gold can go up, woohoo, but gold can go down, boohoo. If I want to hold gold, I'm better off, especially gold, I mean, even more than silver, holding the physical product where I can look at it, see it, touch it, move it, spend it, what have you, and coming up with my own means of providing security so i 'm not big on banking and gold I, I I think we could make a gold banking system work, but that would mean the system moves to gold, not us individually because right now, what they do is they manipulate against gold and other commodities so to me gold's a long term savings play a long term investment play. If I want to play gold or silver short term i don 't mean short as in it could be short, but i don 't mean short as in playing it going down or you know long what I mean is short time. Then I'll use an ETF electronically. It's the quickest, fastest way to, you know, if I just, if I would have had a crystal ball that was working perfectly, then it would have made a lot of sense to buy a gold ETF the, the, the morning of the Brexit vote and to have sold my ass off, uh, a day later, right? I mean, it could make a quick turn of cash there. But you don't do that with physical metal. You don't do that holding gold in a bank account. So when you look at where to put your money, where to park your money, you have to think about security, whether or not you're getting a return of investment, and convenience. So how much money do we really need to have in a bank for um, the convenience aspect? We have to have enough deposits going into a bank to ensure that there's enough money in the bank on a rotating basis to pay our bills, our living bills, our groceries, our vacations, our car, our trucks, our repairs, things like that. That's as much money as you should have in checking. And a buffer. You should have a reserve. You should have a little extra in there. If you're planning it to where you have like $1 left for your next deposit, however that deposit ends up there, that's not good. You know, maybe a buffer of about $1,000 in your checking. Your savings, well, how much cash do you want to save that's readily accessible but on the government's radar? Some of that cash might be better off as physical metal. I don't see any reason to put physical metal in a bank. I'm not big this this gold bank thing. I'm not big on because I've taken the most anonymous wealth I could have. I mean, I could literally put enough gold behind a belt buckle to start a new life, and I'm gonna put it in somebody's vault where it's on the radar that it exists for the government. No, Jack Spearco doesn't do that. Jack would not do that. That doesn't make sense. Silver maybe because it's a lot bulkier, but gold. I mean how much how what is the value of a, of a solid piece of gold the size of an actual brick you build a house with how much wealth is there how much wealth do you have that type of things for like the uber rich that have you know 10% of their assets in gold in a bank somewhere that 10%s a couple million dollars or more um I I would just not do this if you want to have a secure way to hold your money outside the system Cryptocurrencies work better. They, too, have volatility, but we know that volatility is based on a mathematical formula. There will only ever be so much Bitcoin. If And here's how you have to look at all of these commodities, gold, silver, Bitcoin, etc. If If 1% of the money in the world got scared and moved into those three vehicles, they would all go through the roof in value. They would have to. 1%. Now, I'm not talking about 1% of checking accounts, guys. I'm talking about 1% of the global monetary supply moved into Bitcoin, gold, and silver. Anybody holding a significant amount would be very, very wealthy very, very quickly. Now, how how well you'd be able to capitalize on that depends on what happens next. But gold banking, not a fan of. Full reserve, could work, doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. Let's take another one.
3: Hey, Jack. This is Ben from PA. I'm calling to ask what your thoughts are on several different college majors. I'm planning to go to college next year for engineering and wasn't sure which branch you thought would be the most viable for the future. Uh, I'm looking at computer, electrical, and mechanical engineering possibilities and wondered what you thought uh, would most likely be able to allow me to make my money back and would be the best investment for a major. Especially after hearing your show about the next four years of instability. I'm um, uh, planning on going to college at Penn State Erie, which is an in-state school for me, to save on tuition. And I'd also like to know if you think that none of those majors have, are, would be able to make me my money back and are a worthwhile investments. Uh, thanks for your time and thanks for a great show. Bye.
1: Let me just say, I. Uh I really dread the word future-proof anymore. The future is going to be so radically different so quickly, I don't know anything should be labeled as future-proof. I do think what we could label certain skill sets, knowledge sets, and educations is highly adaptable. It's still up to you to adapt to the change. So future-proof would be this. Well, I have a degree in electrical or computer or mechanical engineering, Uh, Therefore, I'm employable. And 20 years from now, if you just had basic experience over those 20 years, you'd be more employable with that same degree. Um, That's not how the future's going to work. So I'll I'll tell you the good news. I think all three of those degrees are massively adaptable. Massively adaptable to the flux that's coming over the next basically 5 to 20 years. That's where you're going to see it. Like five years into it, people are going to accept that it's real, and then the next 20 are going to be mind-blowing, absolutely mind-blowing what's going to happen. But let's examine each one of them and see how they fit into a world driven by automation. If you go into mechanical engineering, which might seem to be the least adaptable to this, all of this automation requires mechanical engineering to function. If I'm going to build a robot that builds a car... I need mechanical engineers to design the car, and I need mechanical engineers to design a robotic arm. It gets more complicated than that, but just get that. I mean that like all of this mechanization is is going to require mechanical apparatus in order to function. So it's not like all jobs are going away, not yet anyway, but more and more jobs are being automated, somebody has to do the automation. So the next one we would look at then is electrical. Well, this shit don't run on jelly beans now, does it, right? That, that car is full of electronics. That, that robotic arm is full of electronics. So we need electrical engineers to design the new technologies, the new robotic arms. And just so you, you got to hear, the car and the robotic arm are metaphors. Lots of other places that you have the same type of thing going on. But again, they don't run on jelly beans. They run on electronics. So we need electrical engineers to design the electronics that run these new high-tech pieces of equipment. And then computer engineering. Well, someone or something has to tell the arm what to do with itself, and something in the car needs to tell the car how to drive itself. That's computer engineering. So all three of those fit very well into what's coming in the future now. The the bug in the works is how many people will have each type of degree, because if there's a demand, let's say for a million mechanical engineers, and you have a mechanical engineering degree, you might be like that's just the bee's knees. But if there's two hundred, there's if there's two million uh, mechanical engineers, you have fifty percent unemployment. So I think one of the things you need to look at for yourself here isn't just the changing landscape. But what are the, what are the, what is the current number of these types of engineers practicing their field today? What is their current employment rates? What are the current graduation rates of each of them? And the one that has, you know, the, the, the donut hole coming where there's not enough, not enough graduates to fill the demand is probably the best choice from a purely pragmatic standpoint. But this is another thing about engineering. Do you know why there's so many less engineers than we need right now? It's, it's not freaking easy, is it? It's not easy. It's hard. You know, these women that want equal pay with men take an engi- go to, into engineering. And you know why a lot of women and men don't go into engineering? It's freaking hard. It's not simple. It's a lot of math. It's more math than anything else. Because even if you can conceive of what it's supposed to do, it's the math that creates the design. And that's just as true with computer engineering as it is with mechanical engineering or electrical engineering. So it's hard. So are you a good candidate as an engineer? Because if you spend a lot of money and go into this and don't complete it, then you got a problem. So you have to, that's another thing. Are you a good candidate? Does this interest you? And that also on the other side of, you know, choosing between the three. Which one really interests you? If you like to build shit, then computer engineering may not really interest you. You may not be passionate for it. So since it's hard, you may not get through it. So I wouldn't tell you that any of them are a bad choice. You have to decide which is the most correct one for you, and are any of them right for you? You know, if you have doubts, and it sounds like you have doubts, then... You know, use caution, I guess. I don't want to tell a person with the right aptitude, with a source of funding, uh, with good with a good probability of success, that wants to go to engineering school to not go. I don't want to do that because you know how I beat up on college all the time and people just don't freaking get it. You just don't freaking Oh God, I went to college and it worked out for me. Shut up. Okay? There are a lot of people that are right. For the college experience from a standpoint of gaining a degree so that they can do better professionally. A lot of people. A shit ton of people. There are a lot more people in colleges that do not, absolutely do not belong in college than people that do. More than half the people in college should not be there. That doesn't mean that the 30 to 40% that should be shouldn't be there. That means the other like 60 to 70% should not. If your degree is in, you know, French poetry, unless you're independently wealthy and just like it, your degree is useless, unless you're going to go teach it. And there's only so many... Look at the one teacher and all those students out there. You see what I'm saying? So there's so many things going on here when I talk about college basically collapsing on itself. We have this degree factory that's just churning out these useless degrees. What's your degree in? Communications? Uh... What are you doing? I'm getting the next person's resume because you suck. Goodbye. Because you don't, I mean, you have a degree in nothing basically. Right? You, you might well have a degree in forget basket weaving and this is not a basket weaving factory, so take your ass on out of here. That's the job market you're coming into. And we've, we've done this, this, this fraudulent marketing campaign. If you get a degree, any degree, Johnny, any degree, Susie, you'll make as much as five times more than the average person without a degree. It's a lie masquerading as truth, people. Of course, the people that get through college in general are smarter than the people that don't, since we've told everybody to go, okay? We've made everybody go, with a few exceptions. Yours truly, for one. So those that actually get through it are generally better as far as intellectually and, and, and as far as being capable and as far as being willing to do things. So they're probably going to make more money. They also have a, a shit ton of debt up their ass, so they're more motivated to get a job. So it skews the averages. And then the high-paying professionals all have college degrees, so their number skews the average. And then we just take that, lie to 16- and 17-year-old kids, tell them to take on $100,000 worth of debt and screw their lives up really bad. Yay! That doesn't mean that a person going into a good quality degree that actually does have demand on the other side of the equation shouldn't go. But you know what it also does mean? Even that person, their degree costs them more than it should. Because we've artificially inflated the cost of school with all of this bullshit. And it is all coming to an end. But it will radically transform. You'll have less colleges. Laser, as far as places people go, laser focused on relevant professions in the future, like engineering and other things. And you'll have all of the stuff that's, that's fluff and floof now. If there is any value to it at all, it'll almost 100% be electronically learned through a computer. That's going to happen in, in grade school. It's going to happen in high school these buildings are going to become archaic relics. We won't know what to do with them. There will be so many out there. But there will still be some. And this is one example of where it makes sense. If you had asked me the same question and said, I'm deciding between uh, an an English degree or an English literature degree, and it's going to cost me $100,000, and I'm wondering if I should even go to college, I would have said no. That's not what you asked. So do you have the grades? Do you have the mindset? Do you have the ability? Do you have the talent? Do you have the confidence? Do you have the passion? If you do, pick the one that interests you most and it, it'll work. You'll be successful with it. But also, take it seriously and as you get into it, if you realize this is not for you, cut bait real fast and figure out what else to do with your life. Don't end up three years into it before you figure that out and you've already acquired 50000 $60,000 worth of debt. And now you have an incomplete major and you're going to finish it with some other, you know, also ran. Business administration, marketing. Marketing is a fine thing to know. But I know a lot of people with marketing degrees doing outside sales jobs. Sales and marketing aren't the same thing. But you've got to pay the bills. Think about what you do and why you're doing it. Let's take one more and we'll wrap up.
3: Hey, Jack. this morning's show kind of depressed me a little eighteen eighteen and I realized, gee, we only have a another year or so of like my favorite one of my favorite segments, the little history segment uh, I was trying to think of what we could do to replace it and have that uh kind of fun historical segment. The only thing I could think of is that maybe we have one where I, we pick something from each century that happened on the day of the show or that i don't know any ideas because i love that little history bit and i don't want it to disappear as we reach modern day
1: well, first, let me correct myself. Jack was wrong. I'm not going to look the music up today to play the, the wrong music, but um, Jack was wrong. It's not one more. It's it's two more. This is a short, quick one I wanted to put out here because I'd like your feedback on it, and I think Alex probably would too. So yeah, I mean, I think Alex, from the last couple times I've I've had him communicate with me about this concept, is is decided he's in it till we catch up, right? Until we say the year was 2016. And you live through it, so you know what happened. But here's some notable things, right? And what happens is, as you get closer to the now in history, the amount of information to choose goes up. So Alex is going to have a hard time drilling down to like one, two, three short stories. And if you notice, the history segments have gotten longer as we come in history right okay because there's more information there's more recorded information we have a better knowledge of what actually happened but we will reach that point then what do we do um i've thought about you know like this day in history a lot of places do that i could just syndicate something that somebody publishes somewhere you know you know this day in history dwight eisenhower took a pee on his dog or whatever it is you know um i don't know that that's really beneficial Um, I will tell you this, if it it is to retain what it is, in the format that it is, in the wiki all written up, sourced, reference, and all, I can't do it. It would have never been anything other than a quick blurb if Alex didn't step up and start doing this so many episodes ago. Um, So it's going to be up to Alex if he wants to do anything. He might say, I've I've done my thing. And I think we should all clap a huge applause and thank him if he does that. And just say yeah, she did. And I think we should do that anyway. I think we should applaud Alex you know, often for what he's done. One option would be, and it would be a pretty long stopgap, because I think the first episode was in the thousands, right? To go back to the year one and backfill. So when we're in, you know, to the point where we're to episode, you know, 2018 or whatever, uh, it would be in the year one AD. And then and, and fill it in so that we end up with a catalog of history in the wiki from the year one to present day. And then do one a year, and I could base a whole show off one a year, right? I could make a couple shows off of one a year. We got into the modern, like what happened last year. It could be, you know, every year uh, before we do the Christmas one, because I always take Christmas to the January one off, or the first show back in January could basically be the year that was, you know, we could do something like all the cable networks do when we got to that. Uh, and then, uh, you know, until, and you fill that in and then you keep that rolling. Um, but if Alex doesn't want to do that or someone else doesn't want to step up and say, you know, Alex is tagging out, he's dedicated a lot of his life to this, I'll, I'll do the fill in, then I don't know what we would do. Like, let's say it went all the way to that and we had somebody, Alex or otherwise, that want to do it. Well, then we could do the years, you know, the year, uh, 1 BC, 2 BC. We could just, start working backwards as far as we can. I don't know. But I do know this. Um, I think a lot of you guys really like the history segment. When I say things like, you know, put out a comment on the blog thanking Alex today, I don't get a lot of comments. But yet every time I, I – I, so I, sometimes I feel like the history segment's not that popular, but every time I talk to somebody, they love it. You know, I get very few people that say it's not really my thing, I skip forward. And there are some. But I'd say of the people I actually talk to, it's like – 85% really like it and 15% skip it. Well, with that kind of interest, I think the more that Alex knew that, the more he would feel compelled to continue. And I still say this for Alex. It's all sitting there in electronics, and I think at some point it would make sense for him to, you know, format into something on something like CreateSprace and turn it into a book. Um, it, I don't know that it would even be that much work to do. Because it's on-demand printing, it wouldn't be a big expense, and I think a lot of people would buy it. I know I would. I mean, it could even be a series of books, you know, in like 250-year blocks, uh, and I would love to have that on my bookshelves. Uh, for all, you know, I I don't buy physical books hardly anymore. Something like that, I would buy in a physical book. I would want it, you know, edition one, one A.D. to 250 A.D. I, I would love to have something like that in the format he's doing. Are you kidding me? It's amazing. I've never actually seen anybody do anything quite like this. To pick and choose just a few things, to give you a snapshot, and to put some context in it to modern day, I think it's amazing. So I, I can see it being a daily reader for a lot of people. Um, but what we're going to do, I, I don't know. It'll be up to Alex. It'll be up to this audience. Because... I have maxed out my mental bandwidth and my time bandwidth in what I have to put into producing things. This is, this is my limit. I'm there. And I've, I've grown wise enough over the years to know that limit and to pull it back a little bit here and there. Let's take another, one more, and we'll be done for the day. And I think this one is a really poignant thing to ask as we get ready to celebrate our independence. And Sometimes I feel like saying our so-called independence because we seem like a pretty dependent people right now.
5: Hi, Jack. Jose from North Carolina here. I have a question regarding the uh, percentage differences between winning an election and not winning an election. This comes on the the EU referendum uh, that just completed at the time of my call. Uh, The spread is 51.9% supporting, 48.1% declining. Uh, I see this type of spread happening in all- pre-election, generally speaking, here in the United States. I'm wondering about your thoughts on that. Uh, I think that uh, whenever you look at it as a regular person uh, that doesn't, you know, analyze statistics, that, uh, you know, seeing close to a 50-50 spread uh, should make everybody kind of feel warm and fuzzy, that, you know, it's like half here and half there, and you know, so it's, uh, so it's okay if my vote wasn't right or, you know, if my vote didn't win because I was really, really close, um, and that kind of thing. Uh, do you think, uh as uh, as far as the statistical spread between these, that these follow a standard deviation, um, or do you think that uh, there might be something more at play? Uh, I know it's kind of a conspiracy theory kind of feel, although we do have documentation in the past of, uh, you know, vote tampering. Um, but uh it looks like this is a popular vote election in the EU. Um, just wondering about your thoughts on that. I just think it's really interesting that everything kinda ends up fifty fifty within a few percentage points, generally speaking, although there are uh some elections of course where the spread is a lot higher than that in one direction or the other. But uh I just feel like it gives a kind of a warm, fuzzy feeling to everybody to know that, you know, things are sorta of fair even though they might not have gotten their way because the spread was so close. So i uh, like your thoughts on that. I uh, appreciate everything you do for the show, and you have a great day.
1: This is a massive can of worms that I'll try to keep small for time's sake and uh, get everybody on to their holiday weekend. Um, and I hope you all have a holiday weekend and, and get the fourth off. I know many of you, especially those of you who serve uh, in, in various ways, do not. But for, for one thing I want to point out, this is kind of why democracy sucks, in, in so many ways, and, and understand, I think government sucks, and therefore democracy sucks as a as a result of government. because I think democracy is fine this way. Um, we are all in a group together and we say, "What are we going to do you know with this money we have?" And we take a vote on it and everybody decides they want to go um, and uh, do activity A with the money. And s- some of the people vote no. But when they realize how many other people voted yes, they're willing to go along with it. Then there's a few people like, I don't want to do this. As long as they can take their money and leave and no longer be part of the group, democracy's fine. But that's not how democracy works with government. With government, 1% gets to decide that the other 49% have got to go along with it. So even with the EU vote, which I think is a, a good outcome overall... What about the 48% or or what have you of people that didn't want to leave the EU that liked being part of it? They might have been delusional idiots, but it's their right to be a delusional idiot. And I don't know that, 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 that the 52% have any more right to drag the 48% away than that the 48% have the right to drag the 52% in. And you say, well, I mean, e- e- the UK is either part of or not part of the EU. Maybe. I don't know. That assumes we have government in its current form. What if the people of the United Kingdom would decide what they are, and then the country with its own boundary decides, well, this is how you get to stay here if you're a European Union citizen, and this is how you get to stay here if you're a British citizen. You can't do that. Well, why not? Because we've been told we can't? I mean, do you think people from France will not be able to go to England at all anymore? Do you really think that? No. So, I mean, that's one issue with democracy. But I think that the bigger issues here, one, there's a huge lesson in gerrymandering here and how they can control our Congress and our Senate with gerrymandering and further manipulate a fundamentally flawed process like democracy where a small majority gets to tell a large minority how they have to live. But if you look at Congressional races and Senate races, a lot of – Senate races less so because of the whole state. But Congressional races, there's a whole lot of 80%, 90% victories in, in Congressional races. And that's because they look like freaking snakes. That's what a Congressional li- the district looks like. It looks like this weird, like, you know, bacteria snake, which is kind of ironic since most of the people in the job are freaking bacteria-like snakes, okay? Um but that actually shows you that if you had congressional districts that were just based on geography and it just a, an even not snaked around, divided up thing, that the people running for Congress would actually have to speak more to everybody than just to Republicans or Democrats or, you know, uh, Tories and whatever the hell they call the, uh, the other ones in, in England, right? or whatever your two-party system is, even places with we have multiple parties, some of these countries say, but it's still dominated by two. And and it's this this this, this finagling with the districts that, that that shows us. But here's the bigger issue. In most of these elections, the majorities should be higher, either for or against, one way or the other. If you have calm, rational people that are well informed, uh, that all want what's best for others and themselves at the same time, that really do want a better life for themselves and their posterity, then there should be a fairly high consensus on an issue going in the you know the best direction possible. If democracy was doing its job, the average election should be overwhelming; it should be 80 to 90 percent for or against. You know, option A or option B. I know you don't think that, but it, but it should be. And, and, and here's why: you just think of whatever political stripe you are, and then think of the the opposite of that, and then ignore the party, the the uh, the, the, the apparatus, so ignore government, and just think about the person that you know that is of that political stripe. And then ask yourself some questions. Not why doesn't this person understand why we need guns? Don't ask that. Ask does this person genuinely want people? To be safe and happy, and I think if you know that person well enough to have a relationship with them and continue that relationship, you'd say, yeah, are they fundamentally a good person? Well yeah, but they, let the, 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 the issue go, right? If you ask all of the, the questions from a moral standpoint, then you'll find that you're far more like them than you are dislike them. And you might have your own, you know, speck in the eye, so to speak, where the person that's over there can't understand, like, you can't understand why they're not okay with, like, everybody that's, you know, not killing people owning a gun, and they don't understand why you want to put people in a cage for owning a plant, you understand that? They don't get it either. But if but if we sat them down and said, your name was Tom, and I said, tell me about Tom. Is he overall a good person? Yeah. Why does he want to put people in jail for a plant? Because he's been misled. Okay. Is it possible the reason you don't think I should be able to own a gun is because you've been misled? No, because I didn't ask you to tell me why. I'm asking you, is it possible? Is it possible? See, most people, even if you put it to them that way, if I asked you Tom and said, Tom, is it possible that you're wrong about it being necessary to put people in jail for a plant, and you let go of your emotions and said, is it possible? Is it possible that I'm wrong? Yes. Okay. So when we start looking at things that way, in general, most law or repeal of law should have large support to the majority. So what does it tell us that we have constantly elections, Presidential and otherwise that are 51:49, and when we do have the third party effect, the Ross Perot effect, or whatever, if we if we took the third party away and put the voters where they would most logically fall, we're back to 49 What what does it mean that we have? Is it so everybody gets a good feeling? Is it fair, or does it mean something far more sinister? It means something far more sinister. What have I said so many times to you? We are so perfectly divided. We are so perfectly divided. If modern liberalism, progressivism, or modern conservatism, if either one were as great as the proponents of them claim, the one that was great would have a significant majority already. But they don't. Because they don't want a significant majority. They want a divided people. They want a divided people. So both sides are willing to do stupid shit. To alienate half the people that would normally side with them. That's why your elections are so razor thin, so close. The vote in the United Kingdom came down to being a lot, no matter what anybody says, a lot about the immigration issue. So there were people who thought you we, we should be able to control our borders and other you're a racist. That's such a preposterous it's such a preposterous um schism to come out and be that razor thin. And you know another thing that we saw in the UK with that close vote? It wasn't close at all. It really wasn't. In in the big urban centers like London, the progressive places within the kingdom, the vote was very high to stay. In the areas with large, large populations of young people who have been manipulated by the, by the European education system, if you're 30 or under and you live in the UK, if you're 20 to 30 and voting, you don't even remember a world without an EU in it. You think the EU is you. But the older people, and the people in, again, the cities and the towns, as though we think we're so much different than the UK, voted overwhelmingly to leave. And we see, again, the flaw with democracy. Let's take a a different look at this. I've said I'd kind of like to see Texas, right? And I I, I do mean that, and I don't mean that, because I think a state the size of Texas being a republic could do as much damage to people or more than our current federal government does. Texas does a lot of shit that people right now I'm not happy about. There's a lot of people in jail in Texas for the possession of a plant. For instance, I'm just saying, one instance. And you would form a new constitution and a new government, and you might have rights that are currently protected under existing that don't make it in. But let's just say that we thought it was a good idea and we decided we're going to have Texas. And and, and it, we get enough signatures, and it gets on the ballot. And we have the big scare campaign. Texas will die and float into the ocean, and the world will end and zombies will eat your children if you leave the Union. Texas cannot possibly survive. You're a racist for wanting to do this. And then we have the equal absurdity on the other side that wants to leave instead of just making logical cases for it. You know, they're just going apeshit nuts in the other direction. We want to round them up and all get them all the hell out of here. You're right, damn right. I mean, because you get the most vocal on both sides of the issue are the people that are not like the majority on either side of the issue. And one way or another, people then get, this is what happens. You have extremists that are the mouthpieces. Instead of logic and, and reason being the mouthpieces, If logic and reason were the mouthpieces, the average person of average intelligence would be able to determine which one is better. But if we have idiots spouting nonsense, then whatever one sounds dumber to you, you're stuck with the other one. Welcome to American democracy. That's what you have. Who sounds more retarded? Who sounds like a bigger idiot? Who sounds like they want to do more to harm me and what I have? And then I'm stuck with the other one. Tell me you haven't felt like that in a voting booth. Since you woke up, anyway. If you haven't woken up enough to realize it's catharsis and you're not going to go do that anymore, you feel that way. You might really feel that way this year. Shit. Ugh. God. I don't want to do this, but I don't want that. That is created by having the extreme nonsense making the argument instead of the logic-making the argument. On both sides. And you get close elections. Because people that would otherwise agree can't agree because the other side sounds so stupid. And you know your side's stupid, too, but it's not that stupid. (laughs) Yeah. That's why your elections are so close. So we do this in Texas. And let's say they run the fear campaign and it doesn't work. And 51% of Texans say, Tejas is my country. I am done with this crap. D.C., you can kiss my hairy ass, and I'm leaving. And and, and you, 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 we are now taking them borders around New Mexico, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Louisiana. Sovereign borders. This is a nation, and we will stand as a nation. And in the United States federal government even goes, well, we... We, we can't wage war against our own state in this modern political climate. We can't do it. Uh, we're going to have to figure this out and let them go. All right. Now, what about the 49% that said, I don't want to leave the country? I don't want to leave the Union? We, our 1% gets to tell them what to do. So, w- w- what do they get to do? W- w- what is done about that? Now, if it was a logical argument, if it was a logical, rational argument taking everything into consideration, you'd probably have a vote that's more like 80-20 or higher for for or against. And I'm not going to say how it would come out. We can't have a logical discussion about it because there is no logic in this. But if it did, out of that 20%, that didn't want to go. When they realized eight of their their ten fellow Texans wanted this, many of them would be like, Maybe there's something to this. And they would voluntarily be part of the larger group. And then there'd be a very small group of people who said, I really don't want to do this. We could probably make accommodations to figure out how to deal with them. Okay, then maybe you can remain here as a foreign national in the United States, or you can leave. But we're not going to just seize your property and throw you out, or tell you to shut up and go along. Because the argument was based on logic and reason and you found out and you would actually find out what the overwhelming majority really want with all the facts in hand. And that's how most elections would be if that was the case. But don't think when you see a congressional election where a guy gets 90% of the vote, that's what happened. He got 90% of the vote because he was a democrat in a democrat gerrymandered district where those people have con- been convinced that the republican is just more ridiculous than their person. If you actually admire congressmen and senators in our country today, if you actually find them as outstanding public servants that are doing a good job and doing the best they can, first of all, I can't believe you still listen to this show, but I think you are delusional. You're delusional. These people do not have your best interests at heart. But they'll sure tell you to wave your flag on the 4th of July and pretend that they give a shit. They don't care about the red, the white, and the blue. They care about the green. That's why your elections are decided by a single percentage point. That's why 33% of people still think Hillary Clinton is honest and trustworthy. Who are those 33%? They're the ones not that are dumb enough to believe that Hillary's honest and trustworthy. They've been so brainwashed as to how dumbass conservatism in its modern form is that they'll insist on believing it, even in their heart, they know it's not true that's that's who that 33% is. There's probably 5%, 10% of people that are actually dim-witted enough or ill-informed enough to actually think Hillary Clinton is honest and trustworthy. I think even her biggest supporters now would tell you, if you got them to give you the truth, well, yeah, I'm a supporter because I'm for all this crap I think I want done, but she's a lying bitch. If they were honest. And it could be our next ass clown president. I'm just saying. Who the hell knows? Anyway, With that all wrapped up, let's try to think of better things. I'll do my best for you. Like, help, support this show by supporting us at uh, 20 cents an episode. You can do that by joining the Member Support Brigade. Just go on to uh, survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. You can see how to sign up there. You can see all the great discounts you get, all the videos you get, all the ebooks you get. It's really a great deal. It's a membership that more than pays for itself. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you guys qualify for a discount if you email me with service discount in the subject line TSPC service discount in the subject line send that email to jack at the survival com if you do not hear back from me uh, on any email that you would expect a response in 48 hours resend it something's wrong uh, I, I never go that long without responding to emails if I'm going to respond to them and you have to do that before not after you join uh, next up remember you can help support the show by doing your Amazon shopping uh, at tspaz instead of amazon.com what is tspaz.com it's just a domain name that I made up, TSP, AZ, TSP, the Survival Podcast, AZ for Amazon, put it together, TSPAZ, And I didn't even know it was TSPAZ when I did. A listener said, do you realize your domain is TSPAZ?" I'm like, well, people will remember that. So go to TSPAZ. You'll see the item of the day. Today's item of the day is the Maglite LED 3D cell uh, flashlight. I love that flashlight. There's a write-up on the blog. It'll be right under today's episode. If you scroll down on the site, you'll see it. You can click on uh, Amazon Reviews. You'll see all the products I've I've reviewed for Amazon so far. I'll keep putting out an item a day. All you got to do is go to t Spaz, you see the item a day. But, Jack, I don't want a Maglite flashlight. That's fine. I understand. But all you do is just search for the stuff you want on Amazon. Do your Amazon shopping. We still get credit because you went to t Spaz instead of Amazon because you typed in one less letter. You get to support our show. And we really appreciate that. It's been working out really well. And I want to thank you for it. Okay. Now, let's talk about our closing song today. I said, I helped write this song. And it was by Greg Yoz. And it's not The Revolution Is You that we lead the show off. Because I kind of like sort of, kind of helped write The Revolution Is You by saying this is some ideas I have. And then Greg wrote the song. This one, I actually came up with the entire concept of moving through time, starting out at the revolution and moving through the various conflicts that made our nation a nation. And uh Greg took a shot at it, he came back and I said, I I I like this song. I like where you're going with it. I like kind of the feel of it, you know. It wasn't a sappy ballad, you know, it was actually anger from the men who shed their blood for our freedom to watch us turn around and squander it. I think it's very applicable to think about this on Independence Day, Independence Day weekend. So there was a problem with it, though. It ended with no hope. It ended with no reckoning. It ended with no consequence to those who are the people that make sure our votes you know, are split by 1%. It, 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 it ended with just this hopelessness. So I wrote the final verse of the song. And I said it to Greg, and he wasn't completely on board with it yet. And I'm like, trust me. Try it. And I even said, here's how to do it. Come down with the music. Come down with the tempo. Have it more like a speaking vocal than, you know, this angry singing vocal. Make it sink in. Let it sink in. The words I wrote were, The patriots are still standing guard on just the other side. They're rooting for us all. Who live free because they died. But to those of you who've turned your back on the land in which you live, when you go to meet your maker, what answer will you give? I wrote that because I felt like there has to be a reckoning. And many of you know I am not of the same religious faith as many of you. I am a deist, I believe in a creator, a God. Um, But I don't believe in any organized faith. And I don't necessarily think that the congressman that stole your money will burn in the fires of hell. But I do think that there is something after this existence. And I think the concept that we will have an accountability for it, including to ourselves, which may be the worst accountability of all. Think of the remorse you've ever felt in your life when you've made some small transgression against somebody and truly realized it was wrong and it was unnecessary, and how bad it might have made you feel. Now imagine all of that at once. Hell indeed. And I feel like these people who have sold out their fellow man for their own personal gain sooner or later, sooner or later, whether I'm right about how or you're right about how, one way or another, there will be a reckoning there will be an accountability. There will be a realization that you took power that was given to you for service and turned it to personal gain. As I celebrate the 4th of July, I am very grateful to live in a nation for despite all of our flaws, is still one of the freest nations on the planet in many ways. We do have liberties here that do not exist elsewhere not the least of which is the one that preserves them, the right to defend ourselves, the right to keep and bear arms. We do have that liberty here. I'm grateful for it. But when people say things like, well, then go somewhere else, not only do I feel like, well, there's nowhere else to go, but your point is invalid. Your point is irrelevant. Just because somewhere is worse doesn't mean that we're good enough. And right now, folks, when it comes to liberty... We're not good enough. We can be better. And it's great that someday there will be that accountability, but it doesn't help us now. What helps us now is the struggle for our own independence. So I'd make this request of you, this 4th of July, make it your Independence Day, the day that you declare your independence. And if you've already done so, reaffirm it. Do it again. Your independence from the system of control that makes you follow along and do what they want you to do, to think what they want you to think, to pick A or B, every time A or B comes up, and never ask if there's a C, a D, an E, or an F in the choice, to never say to yourself, do we really have to settle for one of these two things? How can I... Distance myself from this. Even if I can completely liberate myself, how can I mitigate the consequences of this for myself rather than which side do I dogpile on against the 49%? Declare that independence. And when they tell you to wave the flag and they tell you to think about the men who died, ask yourself how they would feel today to see, to see people take the printed money and buy a big TV while their government steals from them at every possible chance, while their government surveils them at every possible chance, and their government has the nerve to tell them what they can do with their own land and their own property, the part of it that they get to keep. Ask yourself, what have you done with my country? And ask yourself if you feel more like the flag wavers or the voice of the men in this song. But I had to
0: leave my family. A shot heard round the world called up those British bastards that put me to the sword. Well, I died a lowly subject of king and monarchy, yeah. I'm the first American who made this country free. What have do you done with my country? What have do you done? Pay me. Well, I hit that beach of running. with an M1 in my hand. Before I got to cover, I was space down in the sand. Well, I'm proud to die on D-Day, and I'd do it all again. But time has shown me death and war, breached politics and sin. What he done with my country? pay me <laughs> nothing. Yeah. All who live for because they died. To those of you who turned your back on the land in which you live, when you go to meet your maker, what answer will you give? What have do you done? Pay me. What have you done with my country? What have you done with the founding truth? I gave my life so you could be free. And this is how. Yeah, this is how. Yeah, this is how. Yeah, this is how.